If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4, where we are continuing our study of Luke and coming to a great section today, which is the response to what we looked at before. A.W. Tozer once said, I think there is little doubt that the teaching of salvation without repugnance has lowered the moral standards of the church and produced a multitude of deceived religious professors who erroneously believe themselves to be saved when in fact they are still in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, end quote. And that is so true. Today we have people presenting a gospel which is very soft and very easy and very fun and very entertaining and it has produced a whole generation of people who think they're saved but are not they are there to see what god can give them there are multitudes in the church like that very religious very orthodox professors who would, if you challenge them, fight you to prove that they are Christians. They have a history. They have a heritage. They have works. They have faithful church attendance. And they wear these things like little badges to prove that their claim is true. They know Jesus. Nevertheless, they're children of the devil. They don't even know it. And like popcorn, when they are placed on the fires of scrutiny, they change into something a lot different than what they appear to be. And this is what we see in the text before us this morning. What we see in this text is a group of people who at first seem very religious, very God-honoring, God-fearing people. It looks like who would just be more than glad to receive Jesus as the Messiah and follow him. But yet, that's not the case. If you remember, during our last time, Jesus, Luke tells us, returns to Galilee. That is the area where he was born, to his own hometown of Nazareth. After he was baptized and tempted, he wandered around the country, went to Jerusalem and the area in between Galilee and Jerusalem and ministered in different places. He went to um, Cana. He went to uh, Capernaum. He went to these different places and he ministered to people. He performed miracles and he taught in their synagogues. And so he comes to his hometown now and everybody's kind of excited in his hometown because some of those people had seen Jesus minister and do miracles in these other places. Most had only heard about it. And they're very curious because this is one of our guys. This is a guy we know. He grew up here. We know his dad and his mother and his brothers and his sisters. We know him. And so they invite him to synagogue and they invite him to teach a section of the prophets. And he opens up the book of Isaiah and he goes directly to a messianic text, a text that deals with what is called one of the servant songs. And in that text, it talks about this anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ that would come and heal those who were in big spiritual problems, the blind and the the poor and the oppressed and the captive. And he reads all this and they're just, oh, this is just so wonderful. And then he looks at them all and he says, right now, in your hearing, 
in this place, this scripture is at this time being fulfilled. And that's where we left off. We will learn some lessons from Jesus in those first verses from verses 14 to 21. Now we look at verses 22 to 30. So if you have your Bible, follow along as I read. Verse 22 of Luke 4. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which are falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months with a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city, led him out of the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Now, this is such a great passage. We are getting to such good stuff in Luke. It's wonderful. And in these verses, we are going to see four responses of the heart towards Jesus and him telling the truth. And we are going to see these things and they will help us first examine our own hearts. And secondly, they're helpful because they will help us deal with other people when we attempt to minister to them. Because we need to know people are often like the people in this text. Now, the first point is this. You may appear to love Jesus. You may appear to love Jesus, but not love him. Look at verse 22, where the text says, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at his gracious words, which are falling from his lips. And this is the same kind of thing we see in verse 15, where it talks about his teaching in the synagogues and was praised by all. Oh, he's such a wonderful teacher. And the word here. Witness uh, or the word here um, speaking well is literally the word witness. It's the word we get if you were witnessing to somebody. It's to speak well of what they had done is they they had heard all of these things. Maybe some had seen him maybe dur, dur, turn water into wine at uh, Cana or uh, do some miracles up in Capernaum or do some things in Jerusalem. And they had heard these things and rumors had gotten started. And so they're all witnessing. Yeah, he's doing neat things. That's what it's talking about. And then the text also says they were they were wondering, literally, they were amazed or astonished or marveling. Wow. At his gracious words, literally his charming and kind and pleasurable and sweet words. Isn't he a great teacher? He is just such a smooth talker. We just I just love to listen to him. And the problem is, is they were impressed with his ability to communicate, but not with what he was saying. And there are many in the church like this. They speak about Jesus. They say kind words about Jesus to others. And you would expect from their words 
from their comments, from their amazement over the things of God, that these people love God. They love Christ. But as we shall see, these people don't. And the lesson to learn here is this. Don't let a mere profession of faith and religiosity fool you. Don't let it fool you. Don't let it fool yourself or don't let it fool you in relationship to others. There are those who can tell you about Jesus' miracles, about his death, about his burial, about his resurrection, who know the general stories of the Bible, and they may even be quite amazed about these things. But you must never confuse amazement and wonder with love and devotion. They are radically different things. Some of the people who saw Jesus' miracles were quite amazed. But later they cried out for him to be crucified. And you should bring this to bear in two ways. First, you should examine your own life. Look at your own life. Do you even appear to love Jesus? And if you do, is that appearance true? If not, you need to repent. You need to give your life to Christ. You need to receive Jesus as your savior. You need to turn from your sin and receive Christ. If you realize when you look at your life that you just don't even know Christ. Secondly, you must remember this when dealing with others, that sometimes what people appear to be isn't what they are. And this is so important when you minister to people, isn't it? It is so important. People come to you and they talk the talk. They have the jargon. They call themselves Christians. They're they're a church, aren't they? And all of a sudden you're letting them teach your Sunday school or asking them to do a ministry or asking them for spiritual counsel. They may be children of the devil. They may be unsaved. They may be lost in darkness. And so don't just go by just a mere uh, profession of faith. I don't know about you, but you've probably gone to one of those furniture stores and they have, you know, all these, everything displayed really nice. They have bowls of fruit out there. And then they look real, don't they? And you go up to them and they look so real. You just have to feel them. Because, you know, it's like, man, that looks so real. But you pick it up, it's all light. You realize it's plastic. What if you were to take that fruit and take it to the grocery store and spread it out in the appropriate spot in the produce section? Then they would really blend in, wouldn't they? They'd still just be as fake as ever. So just because there's somebody who appears to be a believer who's hanging around all the other true fruit doesn't mean they're true fruit. They may be plastic, fake. And if you don't examine somebody carefully, you may find out that you employ somebody that is working for the wrong side. Don't be fooled. Kind words, amazement, profession, giving witness to Christ and his works are not indicators that love for Christ exists. Secondly, in your heart, you may doubt Jesus. You may be amazed at Jesus. You may be wondering about Jesus. You may even be telling other people about Jesus and yet still doubt him. 
You might, by reading this passage, assume that these people love Jesus. They're madly in love with him. Oh, they're, you know, speaking kindly about him. They're praising, praising him. He's being praised by all. They're wondering about him. And you're just thinking, oh, these people are just ripe. Jesus is going to go in there. The whole town's going to convert. They're going to all follow him for the rest of his days. And, you know, everything's going to be great. And that's what you'd think by looking at the passage. The problem is, is he begins to read a scripture. And he reads it in such a pleasant, wonderful way. And they're all willing to have this. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one come to heal sinners. Mm. Now they're kind of thinking, wait a second here. Wait a second. What do you mean sinners? They could handle Jesus smooth and articulate teaching. The problem is that if Jesus was the anointed one and the prophecy of Isaiah was being fulfilled and he was the anointed one and he was the one fulfilling the prophecy, then that made them the blind, poor, wretched sinners. And this was a problem. It took a while for them to sink in. It took a while for it to kind of click in their minds. And all of a sudden they got it. He's saying he's the Messiah. And he's saying we are the spiritually sick. Look at the end of verse 22 and notice what they said. This often happens whenever you start getting into somebody's heart, they often sidetrack the issue. And so this is what they do. They say, well, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Matthew gives us even more information and tells us what they said after they said Is this not Joseph's son? And Matthew, in Matthew 13, verses 54 through 57 says, they went on to say, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they all not with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. What do you mean to tell us that you're some sort of Messiah? You grew up in our town. You know, you fixed my roof. Take careful notice. As soon as Jesus implied that they were spiritually poor and blind and captive and oppressed, they turned on him. Everything easy was fine with them. Miracles, great. Stories, good. Teaching, fun. You start telling me I'm a sinner, I don't like you anymore. And so they decide now to try and discredit him. Is this not Joseph's son? Which, you know, when translated means this is only Joseph's son and he was nobody special. So how could Jesus be? That's what they're saying. They were willing to have Jesus be a great fun teacher like the people that Ezekiel. Oh, they come to you as with a music lecture and they hear you and you have this melodious voice, but they do not do what you say. Many people today are willing to have everything soft and easy from Jesus. You know, look at what I'm getting from Jesus. Jesus did this for me and Jesus does this for me. And I like Jesus because I get this and I go here and I get this and his people do this. And and God is just waiting on me hand and foot. And oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. And it's all about you and what you want and what you get. But you will never be blessed with salvation until you have come to the end of you and realize that you are blind. You are poor. You are wretched. You are oppressed and you need a savior. 
Now, these people are, you know, not axe murderers of the local town. These are the moral, upright, upstanding, synagogue-going religious people of Nazareth. That's who these people are. These are the people in, you know, quote, church or whatever. They're in the religious gathering here. The problem is, is they're thinking to themselves, you know, God's up there. He's looking at us and he's pretty pleased with us. And, you know, that's why he's come down and chosen us as his people. And that's why he's going to send the Messiah to exalt us and save us because we're so swell. And Jesus comes and says, you're not swell. They go, who are you? Aren't you just, aren't you Joseph's son only? And that was the problem here. They just didn't want to come to grips with their own spiritual condition. And so then they try to look at his heritage and say, well, this man can't know what he's talking about. He's just the son of a carpenter. And anyone who doesn't see themselves as guilty and wretched and poor and blind and oppressed, a sinner never needs a savior and never gets one. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance and to heal the spiritually sick. And if you in your heart are unwilling to come to that place, you're unwilling to have Jesus as your savior. You can't just have him as the one who is the conjoler of your soul only. You see, some people just want to be Christians in name and have the badge. But when they come face to face with Jesus, man, they just can't handle it. And this is why pretenders don't read their Bibles. Because they don't want to see Jesus. They don't want God messing with them. They don't want God in their face. They don't want somebody doing surgery on them. So they stay away from the scalpel because that hurts. And so I'll just not go there. Third, your heart will be exposed before Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jesus knew their apprehension and doubt and said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, they had heard things up north in Capernaum. Capernaum was at right at the north of the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth was about 10 miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had been up in Capernaum. He had done some things up there. They had heard about it. He had been in Cana. He had turned the water into wine. They had heard these things. And you know what? They're ready for some miracles. Give us some of those miracles. And what's interesting here is Jesus, they haven't even rejected him yet, but Jesus is predicting it. He says, well, I know what you're going to say. You're going to quote a proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And then you're going to want me to do the other, the things I did in Capernaum and say, do them now in your hometown. You see. People don't like to be confronted with their sin, especially when they're in rebellion against God. And what's amazing here is Jesus says, listen, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. And and this is what he's saying. You're going to be you're going to think this to me. You're going to be thinking to yourself, listen, you come in here, 
you know, you've supposedly done all of these things in these different places. You come into our synagogue and then you start telling us that we're blind, we're poor, we're oppressed, we're held captive. And then you try and say that you're some sort of Messiah. We know who you are. You're Joseph's son. We know your mom. We know your brothers and your family's nothing special. Listen, pal. If you're such a great spiritual physician, why don't you heal yourself? And if you're the Messiah, come on, bring forth some miracles. We want to see them. Prove it to us. You know what's interesting about this? This is exactly the thing that Satan asked Jesus to do in the third temptation, wasn't it? If you are the son of God, prove it. Pitch yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Fall down. The angels will pick you up. You'll make this incredible, miraculous display. And then we might believe you. And Satan tried to convince Jesus to do that. Now these people are asking for the same thing. Listen, you heal your own self. You first prove to us by some miracles that you are who you say you are. They're willing to receive anything that makes them feel good. But as soon as they get a bad bill of health from the doctor, they get nasty. What? Who are you? Look at verse 24. Jesus then exposes their hard hearts, continues and says, he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, which makes him a what? A prophet. Oh, so now you're claiming not only be the Messiah, that now you're the prophet. And, you know, all of us have experienced this, haven't we? If we've come to the Lord later on in life, we know what Jesus is talking about here. Because what happened to us? Well, you know, by whatever circumstances, we became Christians, right? And, man, we were so excited. I mean, oh, the Bible, which was so boring, which we would never even think of reading before. is now it's so wonderful. And we have Christian friends and we go to church and we sing these songs. And, and oh, it is everything in your life is changing. It's so wonderful that you go home and you say, guess what, mom? Guess what, dad? I'm a Christian. I'm sorry that happened to you. Oh, you need to know that Jesus died for your sins. You know, all you have to do is repent and receive Christ as your savior and he'll save you. Uh, 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 uh. Religion's okay for you, son, daughter, but don't be pushing it on your mother and I not religion isn't for everybody. Oh, no, 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 no. It is. It is. I know this. Listen, you'll get over this. After a while, you've been there. And then if you press them more, then they get angry, right? Hey, don't go shoving your religion down my throat. I don't want it. It's exactly what's happening here. And Jesus says, hey, prophet is least welcome in his hometown. The point is people are more accepting of truth from strangers as they are from people they know. Well, it's just the way it is. And so get ready if you haven't experienced already and you've recently come to the Lord and you go to that person at work that's just lost and blind. You remember it used to be like that. And until God's grace comes into a person's life, they can't even see why you're so excited about what's so dumb in their estimation. It's a crutch. Get over it. You know, evolve out of some slime and get over it. And you're just thinking, man, what's wrong with them? And they're thinking the same thing to you. And notice how Jesus has has now lapsed into second person address. When he gets to this point, 
he starts speaking to them very personally. Now, you can speak in a very easy way. You can talk about they and them and theirs. People in a different place at a different time, and that's not confronted at all. Then you can kind of do the share thing, the we, us, and our thing, and then you can do the you thing. You and your. And that is the most in-your-face approach. And that is exactly what Jesus does. Look in verse 23. No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. And then in verse 24, truly I say to you. Then in verse 25, but I say to you. And this is called getting into someone's face, isn't it? (laughs) Jesus is not letting them escape here. You get close to Jesus, you go under the microscope. You get examined. You stand in front of the living word of God or the written word of God, you get chopped up. Hebrews 4.13, a lot of us know that verse. There is no creature hidden from his side, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And what is that talking about? Verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and on and on. Listen, you get in front of the word of God, man. He dices you up. He goes to the core. He flays you open. People don't like that. Don't go looking at my heart. Have you ever wondered why that is when you're talking with somebody and you just mention, you can mention Hinduism, Buddhism, you can mention any pagan cult, you can mention any sort of carnal behavior, any sort of, you know, lascivious conduct. And they just take that with a grain of salt. But if you say, you know, the Bible says, why is that? Because it's living, it's active. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword. So Jesus is not content to merely know about their sin. He wants to show them their sin because this is what Jesus knows. And you need to know this, that somebody can never get to the place where they want Jesus to save them if they don't realize they need a savior. They have to realize they are sinful, poor, blind, wretched, oppressed. And if they don't get to that place, then they'll never get to the place where they even need a savior. Because why have one? Why be saved from what you don't need to be saved from? And today you would think that Jesus is just this huge vending machine. You know, a credit card. When you need it, you run through the scanner and get what you want. There's nothing to be saved from. I'm just here. I'm a Christian because I get things from God and he does things for me and I'm so happy and he loves me. Okay. But the sin part has to be dealt with. And don't miss, look at verse 25 and 26. This is where Jesus decides to just take a two by four and hit him twice hard. And I mean, he belts him. Look at verse 26 and 25. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when the great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. The people just asked him, hey, pal, heal yourself. Show us some miracles. Jesus's response. Hey, you remember Elijah? Remember the famine? Remember all those widows who were starving your great, great, great grandmother. Well, Elijah didn't give any of them any food. He went out of the country. Sidon went to a pagan Gentile idol worshiping widow and fed her. Mm. Look at verse 27. 
And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Oh, oh, this was, this was a serious wall up here. Elijah was the first great prophet. His, his uh, disciple was Elisha. And Jesus says, and remember Elisha. Not only did Elijah have a lot of opportunities to do some miracles for some starving widows in Israel. He went to the pagan Gentile one. But I want you to know Elijah, the prophet who came after him, also lived in Israel. But when he could have healed a lot of lepers in Israel, because there were a lot. Instead, he went to Naaman, the Gentile, the idol worshiping pagan terrorist. One of those people who went around and attacked all the the bordering cities of Israel, raped the women, killed the children, plundered the houses, set them on fire. He went to the terrorist and healed him. Oh, what a statement. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? No, I'm not doing any miracles for you. Two cases in point, Elijah and Elijah. Why didn't Elijah feed any of the widows of Israel? Why didn't Elisha heal any of the lepers in Israel? Because of their sinful, hard hearts like yours. That's what he was saying. He was saying, you are no better than a Gentile, idol-worshipping, pagan terrorist. Mm. Now, that was true, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. But you know what? They didn't like that. They didn't like to hear that. You you go to the doctor. He has some tests done. And he tells you you have cancer. Are you going to get mad at the doctor because he gave you a bad diagnosis? I would hope not. You want him to lie to you? Jesus diagnoses their problem. And either they admit it, that they're spiritually poor, blind, captive, and oppressed, or they get mad at the physician because of his diagnosis. And you know, that's what happens when you start sharing God's word with people. And I ask you this, do you get angry with God? When you read your Bible and all of a sudden you start going, ow, ooh, ow. I mean, do you get mad at God because he's poking at you? Do you get angry at him? Or when you hear, you know, the Sunday school teacher or me or a friend come to you and says, hey, the word of God says this, your life is doing that. Do you get angry? Or do you humbly confess it and repent of it and say, you know, you're right. I'm in sin. I need to deal with it. You know, there are times when I'm preaching and I look out there and there are people, I mean, when I'm really, you know, blazing fire, um, there are people out there who just have a smile on their face and they're just nodding their heads. Like, just, just kill me. (laughs) Just, just lay me out, man. It just, just fix me, man. I'm so messed up. Fix me. And then there's other people out there whose faces look like Flint with a tight lip clenched jaw and they're like you are not going to stick that knife in me and that's the two kind of responses you get 
Do you despise those who expose your sin or do you love them? Do you listen to those who come to you for your good to try and help you part with those things that God hates or do you despise them? You remember Stephen. Turn to Acts 7. Turn to Acts 7. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he was a follower of Jesus. Acts 7, verse 51. First martyr of the church. And this is the end of Stephen's sermon. Now, Stephen summarizes the beginning of his sermon, all of these different things that God had did for Israel. He summarizes what God had done for Israel. He summarizes that that uh, the key redemptive people and the plan of God, he's kind of tracing the major elements of the God's plan of redemption through the history of Israel. And of course, this is right after Pentecost. And so the church is new and there's all this excitement and people are coming to the Lord. And so he's speaking to a whole bunch of his countrymen, a whole bunch of the Jews. And he says this starting in verse 51. Now, just imagine you saying this to a bunch of people you knew. You men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Notice the second person here. You men, you are doing just as your fathers did. Verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who were previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Ow. Now, was that an accurate assessment? Sure. And you know what? If you look at verse 55, it says that Peter or not Peter, but Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't acting in some sort of wickedness. He was just there doing what God wanted him to do. He exposed the sin of the Jews before him. Accurately in the fruit of the spirit. Forcefully, mind you, but he did accurately. There was no malice. There was no unloving words coming out of his mouth. He knew that before these people could get saved, they had to realize they crucified their own Messiah. Just like their fathers had crucified the prophets who prophesied of the Messiah. They had to come to grips with that or they could never be saved. And because of his love, because he knows they need to come to this conclusion, he tells them forthright. You stiff neck, hard hearted, unwilling to submit to the Holy Spirit people. That was God's diagnosis upon their life through Stephen. And we live in a day and an age when confronting people in sin is a sin. I mean, it's mean. It's a hate crime. It's divisive. It's wicked. It's unloving. How could you judge me? Judge not lest you be judged. You hear that all the time. Don't buy the lie that the loving thing to do is accept and tolerate and put up with some professing believers carnality. It is never the loving thing to do. It is the hateful thing to do. If I know you have cancer and I don't tell you, I am sinning against you. Now, look at how they responded to Stephen. They were so thankful. 
After he brought this to their attention, they all fell on their faces, wept and repented. Look at verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began to gnash their teeth like this. They were grinding their teeth. They were so angry. I can't believe you would say that to us. That's what they were doing. Why? Because he told them the truth, because he exposed their sin, because he tried to help them. Did Stephen say anything that was false? No. Did he say anything unloving? No. Was he being fleshly or mean? No. Was he causing division? Absolutely. And this is something we need to know about right now. Some people... When they look at this or when you act like Stephen did, they'll tell you, you know, you're being divisive. You're forsaking the unity of the brethren. You're causing hindrances in the body of Christ and contention. And this is a sin. You know, the Proverbs, you know, 619 says that one of the seven abominations are people who cause strife among brethren. Don't you know that? Don't you know that Jude 19 speaks of false teachers as those who's caused division? And that's what you're doing and you better stop. And people have been kicked out of churches because they just spoke the truth, not because they were being unloving or they were not in the fruit of the spirit, but because they were, quote, causing division. And we have bought the lie. We've become so fuzzy in our thinking now that we think that if anybody ever causes any strife or any tension or anything like that, any sort of ruckus, they are in sin and they need to stop. Peace at all costs is now the motto. But you know what? If you look at the context of Proverbs 619, you will discover that what is being referred to, the kind of people who are being referred to who cause divisions are the liars, murders, device, those who devise wicked plans, who are engaged in evil deeds and bearing false witness. Not those who are telling the truth. If you look at Romans 16, 17 and 18, you discover in the New Testament where it forbids dissensions, it is forbids dissension and division that's caused by those who teach contrary to the apostles and who are interested in deceiving the hearts of the unsuspecting. If you were to look at first Corinthians one ten, it's Paul says, now I exhort your brethren in the name of the Lord that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. There it is, but that's only half the sentence. But that each of you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. What is forbidden is being of different minds and different just judgments to the teaching of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3 and 4, division and strife are caused by jealousy, carnality, and personality cults. Those are condemned. In 2 Timothy 2, 23, quarrels produced by foolish and ignorant speculations are condemned. In James 1 or James 3, 14 through 16, strife and divisions caused by jealousy, selfish ambition, lies and false doctrine are condemned. But never, ever in the Bible is anything said against speaking the truth, causing division by speaking the truth. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is the case. You will cause strife if you speak the truth. And this is a good thing. Not the strife, but speaking the truth. The strife is just what happens because men are sinners. If I preach against sin, now listen very carefully. If I preach against sin 
and I bring the word of God to bear on your life. And you realize your life is going this way. And God's word is saying this. Now I bring the truth. I force division and strife upon you, don't I? Because now you have to choose. Am I going to go against the truth? Or am I going to go against my sin? You force people to make a decision, don't you? You put a fork in the road before them and say, which way are you going? You make them either separate from God and his truth and follow their sin or separate from their truth and or their sin and, and follow the truth. They, they have to choose one or the other. It's antithetical. You can't walk in the spirit and the flesh at the same time. You can't follow Christ and not follow Christ at the same time. And so when you bring the truth to bear on anybody's life, they have to choose. They're either going to humble themselves, submit to God, follow Christ, or they're going to get hard. They're going to justify their sin and follow after their own wicked way. You force division upon them. That is why Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples in Matthew 10 verses 34 through 36, as he's commissioning his disciples, as he's sending them out, this is what he says to them. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. Disciples of Christ, do not think Jesus came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. That doesn't sound very peaceful. For I came to set a man against his father. I came to set a daughter against her mother. I came to set a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I came to make a man's enemies, the members of his own household. That, people, is what happens when you preach the truth and live the truth. You divide people. It is predicted. It is commanded. And that's what we have to do. And does the church ever need to hear this? Listen. There will be times in your life where it's either have the relationship with your mother or have the relationship with Christ. Have the relationship with the best friend or follow Jesus. Have your job. Have obedience to God. What will it be? And you'll have to choose. It will force you to choose. And I want you to know if you're out there. And you're talking to people about the truth. <laughs> you're going to be making them choose right and left. You're going to be getting the sword out saying, okay, which way are you going? Step on whatever side, make it. You know what? So you go in there, you'll witness to this family. And all of a sudden, one person in the family will accept Christ. The rest will reject them. And then the rest of the family will reject the one who's accepted Christ because of you. Look what you've done to our family. You've ruined it. No, you haven't. You've saved one from hell by preaching the truth. When you lay the truth in front of people, you place that fork on the road. Which way are you going to go? And I want you to know the world is going to try and gag you. The world wants to gag you. 
You just have to get this down. I see this so often. It just eats me to no end. Or Christians are constantly told, well, don't say anything. Don't speak up. Don't proclaim the truth. Don't stand up for what the Bible says. Don't share your faith with me. Don't go witnessing. Don't, don't, don't. But it's okay if we promote our lies. It's okay that if we promote homosexuality and divorce and fornication and anger and, you know, drunkenness and materialism and pride. It's okay if we do that. But you put the gag in it. Do not speak against those things. That is wrong and it's a hate crime. Now, you let us do anything we want, but don't you say anything. That's the world we live in. The other day, I was driving down the road, and I was trying to find some station to listen to. And so finally, I found a classical station, which I thought was pretty safe. Until the commercial came, which was lauding a a festival, the uh, gay festival in Las Vegas, which was... uh, also simultaneously running with the pornography symposium. The word of God says there is no peace for the wicked. And as a Christian, your job is to get people reconciled to God. And there's only one way that happens. You expose their sin. They ha- you have to come to that spot. Expose the sin. They see their need for a savior. You give them the hope. That's how it works. If you don't see you're a sinner, you don't need a savior. You have to come to grips with you are a sinner. You have violated the word of God. You violated the will of God. The wrath of God abides on you. Once you come to that place, then here's the solution. But if you never get to that place, you don't need a solution. You will not receive a solution. And what's happening in the church today is sin is never mentioned. Judgment's never mentioned. Hell is never mentioned. And we're trying to present this gospel that Jesus loves you and he will give you what you want and make you happy and make you wealthy and make you healthy. And it's all about everything Jesus will give you. But they never get to the part about saving people. They just say, all you got to do is believe you're like these people here. Well, yeah, well, they heard about all the miracles. And if you were to talk to them, they say wonderful words were falling from their lips. And oh, yeah, well, yeah, he's great. But they weren't believing because they never dealt with their sin. And the lesson you and I need to learn from this is that sinful hearts are always exposed before Jesus. They're either exposed before the written word of God. Jesus being the living word gave us his word or from people like you and me who are faithful to go to other people and tell them the truth. And you know what? A lot of times they just don't like it. But the Bible says that, doesn't it? All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? They're persecuted. And so it's going to happen. It's all right. It happened to Jesus. It's going to happen to you. You're, you know, nothing special that you get to escape everything, you know, that's painful in your life. God teaches you through those things. I just want you to know you speak the truth to people. They often turn and rip you to pieces. Leads us to our next point. Look at verses 28 and 29. The point is this, if you don't love Jesus, you hate him. Jesus lovingly, accurately, rightly exposes their sin. He compares them to Gentile, worse than Gentile, idol-worshiping, pagan terrorists. Then they respond in verse 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage, which is a synonym for what happened to Stephen, gnash their teeth. As they heard these things, they they got they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And they got up 
drove him out of the city, hence the title of the sermon, get out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill where the city has been built in order to pitch him off the cliff. Isn't this amazing? Just moments before they were saying, oh, isn't he wonderful? Isn't this amazing? Oh, he is such a good teacher. He's got such kind words. And Jesus goes, let me do a little assessment here. You've got uh, a problem and I'm the solution. Kill him! Don't tell me I have a problem. After Jesus' death, Stephen would be the first Christian to follow Jesus in Jesus' footsteps. And he would be martyred just as they eventually did to Jesus. But here it was not Jesus' time to die. Verse 30 says, but passing through their midst, he went his way. And it's amazing. Some commentators say, well, this probably wasn't a miracle. Listen, you got a whole bunch of people here who hate one individual. They're all mad at that individual. They're all persecuting that individual and they're there for the very purpose of driving that individual out of town and everybody loses focus and jesus just walks away and they go what are we doing here come on that is a huge miracle but the irony of it is this they asked for a miracle like was done in the other places and jesus says listen the only miracle i'm going to give you is a a divine vanishing exit And Jesus never returned to Nazareth again, which was the greatest judgment he could have brought upon that city. He never again showed his face in his hometown among all those people who knew him. And the lesson to learn here is if you don't love Jesus, you hate him. Like Jesus teaches in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or else you will be devoted to one and despise the other. It's either Jesus, your Lord, your King, your Savior, your Messiah, or it's something that's going to lead you to hell. You can't have two. There's only one. And one of the tests of a true believer is not whether or not they are able to receive all things they like and feel pleasurable to them from the Lord. The true test of a believer is, is whether they're able to accept hard things, whether to depart with that mother or part with that Son, part with that job, part with that beloved sin. If you are willing to give up your dearest friendship, your job, your career, your sins, and give up anything to follow Jesus, then that would be an encouraging thing for your soul to know that you are a follower of Christ. If not, you need to reassess. How would you have responded? How would you have responded if Jesus would have come to you And told you you were spiritually blind, poor, oppressed, and captive. Well, he does. Right here in this text. I mean, these people are dead. So this word is for us. We're all that way. And if you haven't come to the place where you just realize that's you, you need to. And you need to give your life to Christ. Because if you don't get there, you'll never get to heaven. So what have we learned here? One, you may appear to love Jesus, but it may not be the case. And you need to look at your own heart and life. Do you appear to love Jesus? And does the appearance match what's inside? Or is it all a facade? Secondly, as you leave here today in your heart, do you doubt Jesus? Or do you really believe him and trust him? You know, there are people who say, well, you know, I believe Jesus. But they don't live for him, which means what? They don't believe him. If you're unwilling to follow Jesus, you don't believe him. I don't care what you say. 
Third, ask yourself, ask your own heart. Am I willing to come before Jesus on a regular basis, have him examine my soul, expose my sin and deal with it? If you're a Christian, you'll say, amen. I can't wait to get every single sin raked from my sin cursed carcass. You just can't wait to be more holy and more righteous and to just walk. It's the thought of it just makes you ache for heaven. But if you're one of those people that says, listen, man, I'm not reading my Bible. I, that just makes me feel guilty. I don't want to come to Fort Jesus. I don't want to come to church. I don't want to go to Sunday school. I don't want to be in a discipleship group. I don't want to hear all that truth. It just convicts me. It just makes me feel bad. There's a solution. You know, it hurts. If your child falls down, has a compound fracture and the bone sticking out of their arm, that hurts. And when they have to reset that bone, it really hurts. It's not a bad thing, though. It's a good thing. And when Jesus starts dealing with your soul, it hurts, but it's a good thing. Fourthly, if you don't love Jesus, you need to realize that you hate him because you can't serve two masters. And if you're out here and you realize you don't know Jesus and you don't love him because your heart tells you you don't love him and your life tells you you don't love him, you need to love him. I mean, there's no other way. What, what will you have? Will you have torment and misery forever because you won't love Jesus? He will save you. He will transform you. Yeah, he'll do a lot of things for you. But the first thing you need to do for him is bow down at his throne and realize he is the Holy One and you are not. That he is Lord and you are not. And place yourself in submission to his will and follow after him. And he'll save you. That's what God wants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. What a great reminder it is. The things are not always as they appear. Father, we think of these Jews in Jesus' hometown who were very religious and very faithful synagogue attenders, people who seemed to love you and people who seemed to want to follow you and want your truth and or seemed to be trying to obey, and yet when Jesus came and diagnosed their sinful condition, they wouldn't have him, which means they wouldn't have you. They wouldn't have his truth, which means they wouldn't have your truth. They wouldn't walk in your way. They wouldn't walk in Jesus' way. And Father, I pray that there would be no one like that here. And if there is, Father, I pray that you would grant them repentance, that you would humble their hearts and help them to receive by faith the Lord Jesus Christ that you would change them into new creatures who would desire all the things that you desire, who would begin to be changed from one little bit into another into the image of Christ so that you could receive all the glory and honor and praise. Father, help us to receive your truth. Help us to love to have our sins exposed that we might deal with them and you might help us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.